Well, this morning we are going to wrap up our series on 1 John. We've been exploring 1 John over the course of the last few weeks and have learned a lot. And some of those things John talks a lot about is uh, his, the Christian ethic of love. He talks in his gospel and throughout the, uh, his epistles, the letters, about love, how Christians are supposed to love one another. He constantly calls us back in to love so that those around us see Jesus in us and through us. So that we are an example, a light to the world around us because of the love that we have for one another. We've also seen uh, and learned some things that John teaches about uh, who God is, how we are to believe and what we are to believe about God. We've, we've learned about what, what John says about God the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit, and the role of the Holy Spirit. And Wes talked a little bit about that last week uh, from chapter 4. And, and also the role of the Son, Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to drill down on, on that. Chapter 5, where we're at today, is... Kind of the crescendo of the letter of John. And so in this passage, we get to hear a summary, if you will, of a lot of the things John has already talked about. But we also get to hear his heart and his passion that those he's writing to would not fall away and start believing the the false teachers that are influencing the community. And so there's two things that I hope that, that, that I want to give you today that I, that I think it's important to walk away with. The first is an understanding of the theological context into which John writes and how that's relevant for us today. And hopefully that will be a tool, some things you can note, so that as you study First John in the future, you'll understand uh, exactly uh, some key things exactly to help you study and grow deeper in your faith. The second thing that John drills down on that we'll focus on too is the victory that we have in, in Christ as the Son of God over sin, over fear. Because Jesus is fully human and fully divine. So the, the, the context, the theological context into which John writes is this. The, the, the people that he's writing to are most likely in Ephesus. And there's a group of false teachers known as Gnostics. Or you might have heard the term Gnosticism. Gnosis is the word for knowledge. That's where we get our word for knowledge. And what they were arguing is that Jesus was not human. Instead, he was some apparition of knowledge, some physical representation of knowledge. That Jesus, at some point, uh, maybe they argue at his baptism perhaps, uh, achieved enlightenment and in this became divine and not human at all. Therefore, his sacrifice, the sacrifice of his life and his work on the cross didn't matter. The Gnostics argued that in order to, to be saved or in order to achieve salvation, you had to access some secret knowledge, some level of secret knowledge, higher and higher levels, until eventually you became enlightened like Jesus and, uh, and could be saved through your knowledge. So they completely discounted and discredited Jesus' humanity as well as uh, the, the effectiveness of his work on the cross. Well, if you're John, you were a disciple of Jesus, you know these things are not true because you lived with Jesus. You lived with his humanity and with his divinity. And so John writes to this group of believers to say, don't turn away from this. You are believing the truth. Don't be tempted to fall away and, and follow these false teachers. 
In fact, some were already starting to do that, and that's what created some discord in their, in their fellowship, in their community. And John is writing into that, calling them again, because he all, constantly talks about loving one another as Christians. He's got, you've got to love one another. And it's in loving one another that we see Christ. You've got to stay connected. You've got to continue to believe the truth and to reject these false teachers. So that is the theological kind of context into which John writes. And John's writing from his own experience. He witnessed firsthand Jesus' humanity, the fullness of Jesus' humanity. And he witnessed firsthand the fullness of Jesus' divinity, his divine nature. And he, he witnessed them at work together. Jesus, or John was one of the disciples, right? He, he was one of the inner three, along with Peter and James. They formed Jesus' inner circle. Out of all the disciples, these three spent so much time with Jesus, walking together, journeying together, uh, battling together, learning from, from Jesus all about God and, and who God is and, and how God wants to, to save the world. John intimately knew Jesus. We get a great picture of this at the Last Supper. Jesus, or John and the disciples are gathered around the table with Jesus, and they're celebrating the Last Supper, which is the Passover meal. And it's, it's not a meal that's like run through the drive-thru and get McDonald's kind of meal. Uh, no, this is a meal that takes time. It's like Christmas dinner, New Year's Day, whatever, Thanksgiving meal. It's, it's a meal, it's a feast. It's big and it takes time. You spend time t- together talking and, and sharing life around the table. And they're reclining. And John, we know, is seated next to Jesus. Not even Peter is seated next to Jesus. John is the one seated next to Jesus. And we get this glimpse of their intimacy. So Jesus throws it out there that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And this, of course, causes the disciples to, oh, no, not me. No, it's you. Is it you? Is it you? Who's going to do it? You know, and they're pointing fingers at each other, denying it, that it could be them. And they're, they're having this dialogue. And in the midst of that, Peter nudges John and says, John, ask him who it is. And John turns, leans back, is what Scripture says. John leans back against Jesus. So they're like right here. And he's like, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus tells him what's going to happen and you can read that on your own. But this is a great picture of the intimacy that John had with Jesus. Peter's not even there. In, in the close one to Jesus, it's John. John ex- had this relationship with Jesus, this human, raw, real relationship with the human person of Jesus. And then just a few days later, after the Passover, Jesus has been arrested. He's in the process of being crucified. They lay the cross down and they lay Jesus down on it. And John is there. John witnesses the nails going through Jesus' feet. John witnesses the nails going into Jesus' wrists. John is experiencing the humanity that Jesus has. Imagine the, the sounds, the cries, the noises, the sight of it would be really, really raw. And John is there experiencing it, all of it, 100%. And they lift the cross up, and, and, and Jesus is now up, put it in the ground, he's standing there, and in his last 
breaths. John is there at the foot of the cross. And, Jesus, and Mary is there. And Jesus says to John, in this incredibly human moment, John, take care of my mom. John is entrusted with the care of Jesus' mom because of the intimacy, the relationship that they had together. Incredibly human moment. John experienced the full humanity of Jesus. John also experienced the full divinity of Jesus. John got to experience Jesus do, performing and witness Jesus performing all of these miracles and healings. Can you imagine being John and seeing Jesus raise Lazarus back to life? That would have been incredible. Can you imagine being John, one of the, the three that were invited by Jesus up to the mountaintop to witness the transfiguration? The transfiguration is recorded in Matthew 17 and Luke 9. And in that moment, Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus. And once they get up there, Jesus goes just a little bit away from them. And all of the sudden, Moses is there, Elijah is there, and Jesus is transfigured. John or Luke records it as if Jesus was as bright as a bolt of lightning. His clothes and his face were shining bright, shining bright white. And then the voice of God comes from a, is heard from a cloud and, and God says, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In that moment, John and Peter and James are experiencing the divinity and the humanity of Jesus together coexisting in its raw form. You have the divinity of Jesus shining through his humanity And we know in the Old Testament, if you went into the raw presence of God, even just touching the Ark of the Covenant, you were dead. You could not stay alive if you were in the raw presence of God. And here, obviously, God is able to sustain life in his presence because Jesus is both human and divine. John, James, and Peter also should have probably been dead because they were in the raw presence of God in that moment. But they're kept alive. What a gift, right? What an incredible opportunity they have to share the testimony of Jesus' humanity and divinity. And that is what John does in his letter to the believers in the church in Ephesus that were being tempted to fall in line with the Gnostics who were trying to deny the humanity of Jesus, everything that John had experienced. I don't know about you, but if that was John, I would have been a little frustrated by that. And I definitely would have been motivated to write a letter. But John is the perfect person to argue against the Gnostics that were tempting and trying to pull these believers away. Turn with me in chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles open yet, 1 John chapter 5, just a couple books before Revelation. Or feel free to use your Bible app as well, as it's on there. And we'll read through this and stop at a few points along the way. Verse 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. I want to stop and go back to the third word in this verse, believes. This is not the idea that we just believe in some thing, some intellectual assent to something. Like, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus existed. 
That does not save you. Even the demons believe, and they're not saved, right? They believe that Jesus existed. This, uh, what John is talking about here, is the full turning over of yourself to Christ, to Jesus, to the understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, fully human, fully divine, and he was the, the, the sacrifice for our sins. The full surrender of our will. It's a conscious decision to live a different way. Like uh, Paul talks to the Romans in, in, in Romans 12. He says, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what's going on here. Or as, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, uh, th- uh, the old, new, old creation is gone. The new creation has come. I'm doing something new in you. We have to let go of our old way of thinking and submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. That is what John is talking when he says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. To be called God's children, God's child, we have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And throughout the entire letter, he, he addresses the audience that way. He, conti- he constantly, all throughout the letter, my children, my children, my beloved. John loves these people. And, he know, and he's iterating who they are. The truth of their identity in Christ. He's calling you have to believe, have faith, surrender. Verse 2 This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. Now, his commands are not a list of rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts. Gnostic, if you're going to let go of, of, of your salvation in Christ and follow the Gnostics, all of a sudden you have a ladder you have to try and climb up. Of different levels of knowledge, of enlightenment, of whatever, a list of do's and don'ts, the things you have to do to get there. Instead of accepting a gift of salvation that is free and open to all, not just the elite that happen to climb this, this ladder that doesn't even exist. Verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. What are the commands that he's talking about here? This goes back to Jesus, the great commandment and the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, there's that word love that is so dear to John. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that can be hard. But it's not burdensome if we're called to love. And in John's gospel, in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he sneaks in Jesus's, another command, he sneaks, where Jesus told the disciples, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have first loved you. The idea being that if you love one another so much that you don't let the things that society says should divide you, you don't let those things actually divide you. You overcome those things and you love one another out of reverence for Christ, then the world around you is going to see that and want a taste of it. They're going to want to know about it. They're going to want to have an understanding of what that is, and and you're going to have an opportunity to tell others about the love of Jesus for you. That's absolutely incredible. So, his commands are not burdensome. Instead, it's fun. We get to tell people about Jesus, right? Tell people about the good News. Verse 4 For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The worldview 
that John is teaching against is fear. When he says we have victory and we have overcome the world, if we believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, replace the word world with the word fear. And you get the idea of what John is getting at. John is saying that we have victory over fear. We have no more fear of failure. We have no more fear of not being good enough to achieve the Gnostic version of salvation. We have no more fear that we're getting it wrong. We have confidence instead that we walk in the light, that we are saved and that our salvation is forever and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Paul says at the end of Romans. Verses 6 through 12 are John's theological argument for the last phrase of 5, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a very intentional word usage. Son is a flesh, a human thing. The human son of the divine God. As John writes this, that's very intentional. And verses 6 through 12 flesh that out. He says, this is the one who has come by, by water and blood. It is Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only. As I mentioned earlier, some of the Gnostics argued that, that Jesus was this dude and then at his baptism is when he achieved enlightenment. But then that was it. They, won't, they deny the resurrection or the crucifixion and the resurrection. And John says, no, it's, yes, it's by water, but it's also by the blood. In John's testimony, he can say, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I can testify to that. The water and the blood. And he adds that it is the Spirit who testifies, because it is the, the Spirit is the truth. Verse 7, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, he says in verse 9, and human testimony back then, it only required two eyewitness accounts to corroborate a story and make it, make it a valid testimony. He has already offered three, and now he says, uh, adds God's voice, the fourth testimony. He says, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe uh, God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. The idea here is uh, making God out to be a liar is to set yourself against the testimony of God. To say, here's what God has said, the creator of the universe, and I'm going to set myself over here away from that. I don't believe that. I think God is lying. It's to be anti-Christ. Not the anti-Christ at the end times, but to be against Christ, against God. Because you don't accept that testimony. And this is the testimony, verse 11. God has given us eternal life, life forever, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John 10, 10, uh, in John 10.10, 10, John records Jesus saying, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. All of those things lead to fear, the worldview of fear, right? But Jesus said, I have come to give them life. Even life to the full. It's absolutely incredible. So I want to challenge you today to think about where you're at in your relationship with God. 
Are you allowing God to be the true ruler of your life, to have full authority in your life? Do you have victory over fear in your life? Or are you giving in to fear? Are you not trusting God somewhere with something? Is there a place where you need to lay yourself down? Perhaps it's, uh, it's your, your intellect. Perhaps you've denied the humanity of Jesus and you're just trying for knowledge and trying to achieve enlightenment. Perhaps you, de- I know people in, in this area, deny the divinity of Jesus. And they focus on the humanity of Jesus and try to untangle the miracles and say the miracles aren't real. But John has this testimony that proves Jesus is the Son of God, the human Son of God, and the divine Son of God together. I want to close with verse 13. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know confidently that you have eternal life. He doesn't say so that you can hope that you have eternal life or so that you can wish that you have eternal life. He says, I write these things to you so that you know that you'll have eternal life. You are victorious. You can overcome because you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, John said this, If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Are you at a place today where there's some sin creeping into your life, some doubt? Were you believing some untruth, some unrighteousness? Today, I want to give you an opportunity to take a few seconds and just contemplate that. And then I'm going to offer a prayer. And I encourage you, if, if you are at that place to, of repentance and wanting to turn and submit yourself to God, to just repeat that prayer. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, just trying to guide you. You can repeat that prayer of salvation. So I'll give you a few, a, few, a few moments to consider where you're at in your relationship with God. Some of you are here today and you can say, I'm going to stand up and walk out of here 100% knowing that I am saved. That is awesome. And I want to encourage you to share that testimony. Some of you may be in that place right now where you need to repent. To acknowledge Jesus as your Savior. To fully surrender yourself, your intellect, your will, your emotions, your heart to the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's where you're at right now, I invite you to pray these, these words with me. Lord God, I come before you humbly in this moment. And I surrender myself 
I repent of my sin. I repent of the, the way I've treated you, the way I've ignored you, the way I've tried to keep you away and keep you out. I know that you are the Son of God, my Savior. And I repent of my sin and I ask for your forgiveness. And right here, right now, I'm willing to commit myself to you and make you the Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness for your grace and for extending mercy to me. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.